And, and what would happen is like, I'd get my ass handed to me in some way by some regular and I'd be like, damn, that was cool what they did to me. And then I'm like, I'm going to do that to them <laughs> back. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I liked having my ass handed to me. I liked seeing how someone could destroy me because it just made me stronger. What's up, everybody? Today, we've got one of the most successful women's poker players and someone with who's displayed success kind of all over the field. She's won a ton of money from Heads Up Tournament Sit and Go. She's won about a million dollars at MTT. She's succeeded at cash games. She's played across all kinds of TV shows, such as NBC's Poker After Dark, ESPN, you name it. She uh, won the WPT South Africa. She's done kind of it all, including coaching and also working with business professionals and made a seminar to partner with seminars into acting as well, possibly some other stuff. Please welcome Melanie Wisner. Is all that accurate? Is that uh, a fair description? Yes, for the most part. Hi, it's super nice to be here. Thanks for having me, Dan. Um, the acting is actually something I did early on before poker, and most recently, like what I did more is directing, but uh, definitely a, a theatrical involvement regardless. All right, well, the theater got in there, too. We'll throw in directing as well, a little bit different. <laughs> and why not add another a skill to the mix? Um, it seems like, uh, yeah. It you know, seems I, like do, you know, you know I do pole vaulting huh? recreationally. Pole vaulting? Oh, we, gotta, we can't forget pole vaulting. Maybe, maybe you can, like, participate in the Olympics, too, while you're at it. Like, you know, just in your free time. You know, when right. you're not busy. Right. <laughs> No, I would have told you there's actually something cool that I've been working on that I would have loved to have told you I accomplished, but I just haven't yet. I'm trying to become the world number one in this uh, board game that I play online, but I've only made it to number two, so I can't say that yet. Oh, only only number two. That, you know, whatever. It's <laughs> no big deal. The world. There must have been something going on. Talking to you, I knew that you were quite intelligent. And, uh, like, obviously you've been successful at poker for a long time, but there's something to be said about that because most people don't stick around for that long. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about how you began. Uh, you started off in theater, uh, as we were just yeah. talking about, and, like, somehow poker got into the mix. It seems like a really odd transition. Yeah. Um, th though for some reason I've kind of gone the opposite way. Yes, you have. Absolutely. So, how do you go? <laughs> so um, how... How did this happen? So the the short version of the story is that my younger brother uh, was playing online poker when I was in high school, and he won like $50,000 online when he was 15. And I thought to myself, like, okay, like, <laughs> I could do that, clearly. And um, I played like a couple little things uh, in my gap year between high school and college. I went to, I was working at a restaurant on, in my gap year and someone invited us to a poker game and I just thought it was so cool. It was like all these guys in someone's like garage and it was like a little three table tournament and I won it for like $300 or something. And I mean, I did every stupid thing you could possibly imagine. Like I, I, I had four of a kind, uh, jacks at, in in one hand and in the middle of the hand I just turned my hand over and someone was just like I didn't call you and I still managed to win the tournament which was which is pretty cool and uh, then I was just like oh clearly I'm incredible at this you know the classic Dunning-Kruger situation and then I spent like 
a year and a half losing uh, when I went to college. I would just like put money online, lose it, put money online, lose it over and over and over and over and over again. And I had to like do these elaborate things to be able to play because I had a Mac and you couldn't run uh, poker stars on a Mac then. And you definitely couldn't run full tilt on a Mac. And so I would have to use my roommate's computer to do it. And she explicitly <laughs> forbade me from doing that. She like saw me once. She was like, you can't play poker. On, you can't gamble on my computer. And so I, I did this whole thing where I figured out how to change the name and the icon of the file on her computer so she didn't know it was there. <laughs> and then I would I would text her and I would say like, you know, uh, what are you up to tonight or where are you going to be? Like, maybe I'll come meet you. I had no intention of meeting her. I just wanted to know how much time I had to play online poker. So that's how I would like spend my weekends in college. And then um, I eventually... Uh, moved dorms and there was a group across the hall from me th these three guys who I played poker with all the time and they let me use their computer all the time and they thought I was just like such a boss <laughs> and so it, it kind of took off then and uh, I started doing well like I started kind of like going deep right but I, I couldn't like really break through uh, like I, I hear this all the time from my students and clients like you know I, I make it so far but I just like don't make the final table that was what happened that was what was happening to me and um, Kevin Saul who was like this you know idol of mine online at the time uh, posted this uh, thread on pocket five so I wonder if like anybody could find it in the archives and it was called hands from my MTTs on stars tonight and he was posting them live and so he was from like you know four different tournaments he was playing and I remember reading this and thinking like okay that's what he's doing that's why that's why this works like that's why this aggression works this is so cool and I was I was too you know stereotypically conservative at the time and so seeing someone uh, execute a really high, uh, high level, super aggressive caliber of play kind of brought me right where I needed to be in the middle. And from then on, I just like started winning everything. And I like, didn't look back. I like every tournament I ever wanted to win on stars. I won like the, the Holy grail for me. Do you remember like back in the day? I don't know. Did you ever play tournaments on poker stars? I did, yeah. I can't say that I had much success in MTTs on poker stars, <laughs> although I can see how, especially if you're unknown, like being quite aggressive would work pretty well against oh, yeah. most people. Well, I would like watch, um, you know, those like, high stakes, the cash games. I would watch them and like Hollingall and like all those guys. I would like watch and be like, oh my God, that's so cool. I'd like read these hand histories of all these people playing like super high stakes. And um, so I like wanted to get there. I just didn't know how. And then I got to sort of see it. Um, but like, I remember thinking when I, when I first started playing, I was like, oh my God, I want to, I want to win the 11 rebuy. Like I want to win that tournament. Like that was the, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, like first, pra first prize is like, you know, 13 or 14 K in that thing. And I remember winning it. It was a huge field. It was like a couple thousand people every time. And I won it multiple times. And I, I went to, and on my, in my junior year of, of college was like when it started really taking off. And my roommate thought I was just making the whole thing up. She was like, you don't, there's no way anyone really wins money at poker. And the first night that we were together in the dorm, I won the 11 rebuy for like the second time for like 14K or something. And she was just like, oh my fucking God. So, um, and then what, what really sort of catapulted it was there was a tournament with frequent play. It was, it was the entry was frequent player points. You're getting like a side of the story. I never tell anyone, by the way. So this is really funny. Um, and it was called the, the turbo. <laughs> it's called the turbo takedown. And so it was like 3,000 or 5,000 FPPs and you would win it and it was a million or you'd, en you'd enter with that and it was a million dollar prize pool. 
And I final tabled this tournament and um, we were three handed and it was like 40K, 60K, 100K, something like that. And we were, we sat out, we were waiting for a deal and no one ever came because it just so happened the Sunday million or the Sunday warm up, one of them was in, was in talks at the same time. So whatever host was available was there. So no one ever came. We blinded, we just like traded blinds around for like almost an hour. And then one of the guys just like was like F this and started playing after we were now we're like 10 big blinds deep effectively. And I of course took third, which was great. Like 40K was like life changing money. Um, and I was like 20 years old. But I remember emailing poker stars because I was like, they sh they owe us something for not coming. Like my equity would have been this. I would have had another seventeen thousand dollars, whatever. And I got this whole email back from poker stars saying basically, no f off. Um, but here's a here's a here's a ticket to the Sunday Millions so you can put your obvious tournament skills to use. <laughs> and so that's kind of how that was kind of like the whole story. And then. Um, I sort of started learning about the whole live world and I went to Atlantic City for the first time right after I turned 21 and I played some little tournament at the Taj Mahal and I remember everyone talking around me um, about their screen names online and I was like oh my god I know you guys like I played with you and you and you and they were like who the hell are you and I told them my screen name and the jaws just like successively dropped and they're like oh my god you're a girl and it was a whole it was a whole thing and I learned about like the tour and I really liked these people that I had met and they were all just so smart and interesting and and like just you know poker brings a lot of unique characters. So then I went to my first EPT and then I won the ladies event there and I was just like super hooked. I love travel, I love food. I wanted, I loved poker and I just like decided I'm gonna do that. Musical theater just like fell to the side and uh, that's kind of how it happened. Well, that's a hell of a story. <laughs> Much know, more right? colorful than most poker player stories. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like you entered poker through MTTs, right? And I guess from there you went to heads of sit and goes. Yeah. So, so what happened was I think I like messed around on like 25 cent, 50 cent cash when I first started playing online, mm -hmm. I won this $20 tournament for a couple hundred bucks, like I said, and then, uh, and then that, and then I started playing tournaments, which was just really cool. It appealed to me because, you know, for the reason any noob wants to do anything because you can win a lot of money for a tiny amount right but i i also really liked the the leveling up of dynamics i liked that um excitement that kind of came along with it i like the pressure you could put on people i kind of like this idea of accumulating every chip in a tournament for yourself i thought that was very cool and then what what really came out of that was i wanted to play more hands but I couldn't uh, and still do well. So I, I decided I decided let's try heads up sit and goes. And the, it actually really supported my game because I was able to play way more hands. And so in heads up pots in tournaments, I felt like I, I really knew what I was doing more because I had seen so many hands. And then on its own, I just loved that like one-on-one -on -one attrition. And I felt like I felt like I got so much better faster playing heads up because I would like move up to the next level. You know, I, I was playing like whatever hundred dollar heads up sit and goes and then I'd move up to two hundreds and like everyone is so good and I'll, I learn like the regulars names and who they are and like I remember like specific things like, I had so many aha moments you know in my game like of course the game is the game state is much different now but I remember when I learned about thin value betting and then I learned how to take advantage of thin value betting and I, I learned like what lines people would do with it and and what would happen is like I'd get my ass handed to me in some way by some regular 
And I'd be like, damn, that was cool, what they did to me. And then I'm like, I'm going to do that to them <laughs> back. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I liked having my ass handed to me. I liked seeing how someone could destroy me because it just made me stronger as a player. And then I could do it back or I could learn a creative way to exploit what they were doing. And so that sort of really cool thing happened all the time when I was going up in, in Heads of Sin Goes until I got to like, you know, the, the level below the top on Poker Stars. And that was where like Liv B and um, uh, what was his name? Uh, oh my God. Olivier, maybe? Bousquet? Yeah, well, him. Yeah, Liv B, but a couple of other people who were like playing the 1Ks and the 5Ks on, on Stars. And that was like, oh my God, like they're the best in the world. And then I, and then I got sponsored by Full Tilt and I, I, I started open sitting the highest stakes on there, which was like a huge, you know, I, I, we're just playing this dumb little video game online, but it feels like you've mastered the world when you're, when you're doing that. And so I would sit there on, on full tilt and I'd have my little custom avatar of like this, you know, I was in like this little green shirt with the red hair and all like the different expressions I could, I could make. And, um, <laughs> you know, I would just, I would just battle whoever came my way and, and some of them would be other red pros and some of them would be you know, randoms or whatever. Um, and I didn't really play a lot of the other regulars because we had all we had all known each other for so long and, and most of the regulars just like didn't sit each other. So, but I, mm -hmm. I got, I, I remember that, that Heads Up gave me like this pure kind of satisfaction of like demolishing my opponent and also helped me just play more hands so I could just get better quicker. So that was, that was kind of what happened. It, it, it I ended up moving away from it because I wanted to play live more and, there, you know, there's only like one heads up tournament per tour stop. So it wasn't like, it didn't make sense to focus on that so much, but I, I mean, I grinded heads up. That was like how I, how I made most of my money for a long time. That is pretty interesting that it, uh, it maybe accelerated your learning. Uh, it makes me, it for gives sure. me the idea. I mean, I knew that the idea of playing online will definitely accelerate people's learning quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and well, that's how our generation outpaced everyone before, right? Yeah, mostly. I mean, there was some live stuff going on where people had their emotions in play and all that, where the online guys didn't think about all that stuff and live tells and, and whatever Some of them nonsense. still don't. And then, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's different. It's I mean, there's some stuff to it, obviously. But I never thought of using Heads Up as, like, a way to get better at the other games. I mean, I'm sure you could see, like, more like of the psychology of what's going on and more of like how what you can get away with when you're playing with people and that kind of thing. Whereas mm -hmm. if you play ring, it's really hard to see that, at least at first. I think Would you that, say that's what happened that you, with you? Yeah, I, I think that you have to have a certain level under your belt before you can kind of like navigate in and out of that. Because... Uh, the, the ranges are vastly different. The, the, the average hand strength at the river is vastly different. The, the way you want to maneuver is different. Like you're the small blind and the button, like all, all of that is, is, is unique to, to heads up. But I think you get a really good sense of what people like to do and how they feel about their hands, even though it's, it's a little bit of a, it, it's like a parallel dimension, you know, it's not one-to-one -one translatable mm -hmm. to, to MTTs, but you get a sense, you really get a good feel. You see like what people do when they're strong, what people do when they want you to think they're strong. Like all of those kind of like logic, like, like the, the, the biggest thing for me when I first learned poker was, okay, I have to compare what someone is doing, what, what, what they're representing to what they'd really be doing 
if they had the hand they're representing and, and, and learning how to combine those two things. And, and that was very helpful because even though, you know, the hands weren't the same, I wasn't like raising King Deuce off and someone calling me with Queen Street, like, like nothing was, was happening like that, but I could tell when people were uncomfortable, I could tell what, what put people in difficult spots. I could tell when people were legitimately strong, like all, all that stuff was, was very helpful because you play, you know, almost every hymn and that's, and it, it, maybe it was a little bit too of like ADD, just being too bored, folding so much. Um, but I, I think I think once you have a, a decent level under your belt and you can you you get the idea of the transition, absolutely you could practice there. I will say that everyone's really good now at heads up, sit and goes. Like I, I went, I like years later after I was like done grinding. I remember going on full tilt and like so I used to sit the one Ks and I just wanted to mess around at like a like the one hundreds or two hundreds and I was like, what? <laughs> These guys are so good. They would have they would have. It's unbelievable how good everybody has gotten. So the games are are quite tough, but maybe at you know low super low levels they're still fun and useful for that. Yeah, yeah, I was wondering that myself because like nowadays, if like someone just like looks up where the solvers at, they can yeah. play reasonably well if they put in the work. Yeah, like now they have to. What do you, what do you think? Are you levels. do you like it more now as you like go deeper into solutions, or did you prefer when it was just kind of like? figuring it out and the the smartest person would win and like the cleverest person would win that kind of thing um i think i definitely preferred the former for all sorts of reasons at least yeah at least the at first former? but now sort of the wow. game has changed yeah uh where you mean the latter the solvers didn't you mean the latter? Uh, yeah excuse me the latter that's what i meant to say you're right where yeah there's a lot more value on the table because it's just a matter of the, the way of this economy of poker where inevitably, if we just look at things from a purely um, skill technical standpoint, there's going to be diminishing returns as more people become better and better. So now the game has to change in a different direction. This is the whole reason why I start dressing up, doing goofy stuff, <laughs> because, you know, like to me, all of this has sort of become like, okay, I can just like look, look this up in a computer and like figure out the rough principle and that that's like it that doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun to me versus yeah, the actual battling and like that. maybe there's something that. more to the game um i mean i could think of some some things that could be worked and maybe there's some like hard exploits but it's like there's still diminishing returns on the time and effort and now there's like high rake and whatever and you gotta like fade that um but to me it's more exciting to pursue the creative avenues because those are really open-ended and you could do all kinds of stuff. There's more laughing involved, and uh, you know people are less serious, and you don't have to battle a bunch of robots. So yeah, and you clearly unravel yeah. people's games. You know, I I won't mention any names, but but you've definitely put put people off their games at some some certain final tables. Maybe mistakes that should have never been made by your opponents. Like what? Like what? I don't really? know. Limit limit hold'em comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when magic is afoot, um, yeah, when magic's afoot, things things are a little bit different. Uh, and we, once magic enters the picture, all of a sudden... All bets are off, yeah. Um, magic, the psychology of magic sounds like a book or some kind of topic that could be on a YouTube channel. Um, but, uh, yeah, what you're saying is really interesting because definitely... Um, 
all of what you're talking about seemed to be a lot of what a lot of players lacked when I was looking at them myself and trying to like help people become better at the game or thinking like what could actually be useful for people to become better at the game. But it does make a lot of sense that if you're like battling someone heads up who doesn't have a solid foundation of game theory and doesn't know, okay, I'm going to just always call these hands or whatever and have this game plan, then yeah, you can like find like pretty big exploits and then exploit them pretty hardly or pretty strongly. I mean, I imagine you use this a bit in your coaching or do you? Um, because yeah. I know you help people get over emotional problems and you help people, you coach people in all kinds of ways. It sounded like from talking. Yeah. To you. So I, I really like to focus on mental game. And, um, aside from this, I've actually, I have some friends that are, um, pretty big, uh, trading, especially like crypto and like nobody in the trading world ever talks about mental game, which is like astounding to me because it's, in the exact same thing, if not exacerbated. But um, I think that that mental game is really what separates the good from the great players. And I think that in in my own career, I can I can think of moments that like would have given me huge swings had I been able to get my mental game to the place that I really wanted at the time. And so I've done a lot of thinking about it and reflecting, and and I've I've sort of made that a big focus of of my coaching because I think, and I also think it's just like. Oh, it's very valuable to people because I, I I think that everyone can find range charts online and and it, it's more it's more interesting to me and I think I can provide more value helping people get out of their own way whereas many people can teach you you know the basic technical elements of poker um, I also I also noticed that for a long time and maybe it's still kind of the case there there tended to be this big stigma about tilt like no one would admit they tilted. Um, tilt was something that non-professionals did, right? Like a, a professional would always have everything under control and a, a professional would be simply immune to the ill effects of emotions at the table. And what I learned is that is that, that isn't true at all. And that was that that narrative was doing a big disservice to players because the the key is not that you never suffer. The key is that you're not ever suffering or not ever compromised, but that you basically never play when you are or you have a strategy to immediately take you out of that state rather than what a lot of people a lot of my peers did which was basically just say that they weren't tilting or like ignore it completely and no one ever did any work on that um so that that's a big part of what i of what i like to focus on and and i think that in this day and age as well with the kind of inundation of information that people have uh you know you can watch a stream here it's all and you can do this there like you don't you don't necessarily have the ability as a as like a casual or recreational or even like semi-pro player to separate the wheat from the chaff and so people end up getting all of these pieces of data into their game without it being built on any kind of foundation. And you'll you'll see this all the time. Like I, I have a joke with a good friend of mine about how people are just like these slot machines of poker terms and they just run the crank and like three different terms <laughs> come out and they like say a sentence about it. Um, so so I kind of I kind of like to rebuild people's thought processes from scratch because I, I really feel like if you have a high fidelity, high quality thought process that you can kind of always count on, then it doesn't really matter what situation you've found yourself in because who can possibly practice however many trillions of hand situations there are, but you can navigate through any set of variables that you find yourself in. So that's kind of the basis of my approach to 
to coaching. Okay. Can you give some more examples of how you deal with different personality types in poker? Yeah. Um, like how what the remedies would be for certain problems that you've seen? Because like I've never heard of anyone really doing dealing with this except perhaps yeah. Tommy Angelo and other mindset coaches. Ugh. But, Tommy Angelo, be still my heart. I love that book so much. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the way I like to think about it, I mean, I really draw upon my own experience um, to sort of extrapolate from for this kind of stuff. Um, but I, I believe that the version of yourself that is compromised, and, and I think everyone can relate to this, whether it's in poker or out of poker, you're in the heat of the moment, you said something you didn't want to say, you realize the perfect thing two hours later that you should have said, like you're, you're not exactly yourself and that's because hormones are pumping through your body and, and everything else. Um, but the version of you that is calmly discussing and analyzing right now, just as we are, is not the same version as when you're compromised. And so it would be crazy to assume that that version of yourself will behave the same way under the same logical and reasonable constraints that that your calm sure. analytic self would be. And sure. the the uh, analog I like to use is someone who's decided, oh, you know, I really want to eat healthy and I want to get in shape and whatever, but they buy junk food at the grocery store and keep it in their house and they think, oh, you know, I won't, <laughs> I won't touch that. But they're creating a situation where the, you know, weak version of themselves is now unprotected. You know what I mean? Rather than creating a situation in advance where the weak version of themselves are protected. And so that's kind of that's kind of like the underlying principle and like the base analogy I like to give. I, I, I have people talk about and I, and I also will say this is incredibly difficult because a lot of people do not like to kind of dive deep in, in this way and, and peel back the layers of their weaknesses and, and it's uncomfortable. And, and they also tend to skew towards wanting to impress their coach, whether it's me or someone else. They want praise and, and good feedback and, and there's Absolutely. a relationship there. So it's, it's a, it, it can be, I, I have to tell, I have to tell people that my, that it's not my job to make you, you know, feel good about yourself. It's my, it's my job to kind of rip you to shreds a, li a little bit and build you back stronger. And so I, I find that, that, that making sure people understand that and, and giving them a way to get comfortable with that is, is really key. Otherwise people are kind of just operating as the version of themselves that they want to present, that they want, you know, it, it happens in all sorts of ways. Like people will just leave out hands that they played really badly because, you know, oh, well, I know why I did that oh, and man. blah, blah, blah. Uh -oh. So you have to make sure that, that people are comfortable exposing their true selves to you. And then you can get hmm. more granular with it. You can you can say things like, well, um, in, in what ways do you find yourself becoming weak? Like for some people, it's they become too loose. For other people, they get, you know, distracted. They have like, um, I think, um, what's his name? Uh, Jared Tendler, I can't believe I just said what's his name about him, um, has a really great part of his book, The Mental Game of Poker, where he talks about all the little types of tilt. He's like, there's finger tilt, there's injustice tilt, there's hate losing tilt, there's there's uh, entitlement tilt, there's every little thing and there's every way that it manifests. And people are just like, oh, well, I'm not tilting if I'm not you know, going all in the next hand with anything. But they are, they're, they're, they're deviating from their game in some way as a response to something, right? So firstly, you have to find out what that is and what the trigger of that is and like what is is underneath that. So like a, a super common thing is like um, that, again, is is still has its own individual character to it. But a common one is like people wanting to make calls. They want to call people. Why? Because 
they don't want to be bluffed because what if their opponent is bluffing? So what's so bad about that? What if their opponent is bluffing? Like, how do you, how do you like really get in there? Like, what's the worst thing that can happen if your opponent is bluffing? What you suck, you're a loser. Someone, someone owned you, you know, like, like you have to, you have to like really peel back the layers there. Like, and once people kind of start to remove the specter of what could happen to them if they're wrong or like what this means if someone got away with that or whatever. It, it's kind of along the lines of like what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, and you know, once you learn you're not going to die from it, once you bring it down into the immediate, okay, so what's the worst thing that can happen here? I can call here or I, excuse me, I can fold here and my opponent's going to say, look what I did to you and show you the bluff, right? That's the worst thing that can happen. So what is going to happen after that? You're going to lose the pot and you're going to move on to the next hand and you're going to feel kind of shitty and you're going to have this data and like that's it you're going to survive you're presumably playing a stake where that loss of that pot is not going to seriously affect you and so that's what that is the immediate nature but people don't they don't want to bring it into the immediate they want to keep it as this like amorphous kind of specter that and that is why that is what hijacks them that is what keeps this in this like fearful state so the more immediate you can bring this in into your experience the more you realize i can deal with this so what i have people do who have that particular problem you know i explain all the normal things which is like you know if you're calling if you're never getting bluffed you're calling too much like wouldn't you rather not pay off people nine out of 10 times and get bluffed one out of 10. You know, we, we talk about all that. But in terms of the experience, I find that it's really useful to have people deal with the worst case scenario in the moment. You know, like they, 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 they literally just talk to themselves. They say, okay, I could call here and, or, or sorry, I could fold here and, I'm, and I might be wrong. My opponent might show me a bluff. Here's how I'm gonna feel. Here's what, what's gonna happen there. Now that I've brought it into the immediate in, into my immediate processing, I can now set that aside because I've dealt with it. I've now dealt with it. I can set it aside and I can focus on on what is at hand rather than worrying about this thing that I that I might possibly have to deal with. And and that that was like that was really helpful to me as well because I wouldn't want to, especially when dealing with mistakes in general, you have to focus on what they feel like. You have to focus on what's going on. How does this feel to me? Like, I remember what, so, so to, I, I'll come back around, but what happened to me early on in my career was I thought everyone was bluffing me. And to be fair, like they were bluffing me a lot, but I thought people were, were always trying to see what they could get away with, right? <laughs> and I, I got caught up in this idea of like, oh, I'm a girl, they're gonna try to push me around, blah, blah, blah. And so I would keep, and, I, and it also felt so good to make a hero call, right? To just like <laughs> own someone with a hero call. So all of that converged, made me too loose. I was, I was calling too loose. And basically I would be in these situations where nobody had any reason to be bluffing me. I was established enough to where like people didn't think they could just push me around. And I would find myself latching on to this one thing of like, but what if they have the one hand? And then I'd have this out of body experience, like watching myself put the chips in the middle. And so, so I was like, I have to stop this, you know? And so what I had to do is I had to pay really close attention to how that felt instead of like distancing myself from it, like a trauma recall. Um, I would, I was like, okay, what does this feel like? Where does the thought process start moving? How does it feel physically? Like, do I feel flushed? Do I feel hot? What's going on? And so when I paid attention, then the next step was recognizing it then I could recognize it when it was happening. I didn't have a solution yet, but I knew. I was like, oh, it's happening again right now. And then I, I did this, I started doing this thing that I learned 
um, from a psychology book called coupling, which is um, manually associating something with someone else, with something, something with something else, instead of what you normally associate with. Like the automatic coupling was, I'd think these things and have these feelings and put the chips in the middle, right? So I had to associate those feelings with something else, which was starting over starting over in my thought process wherever I was, fuck it, let's start over from the very beginning. So not only was I able to identify when it was happening, but I was able to engineer a solution. So that attention piece is super important when, when dealing with people because what you'll find is that most people just want to move on. Why did you do this? I don't know. I know better. You know, they don't want to explain. They don't want to get granular. They, they themselves don't want to dive in. So you dive in and then you have to kind of engineer a solution based on them, not based on you. You know, what do you think, if anything, you could have gotten you out of that moment? What could someone have said to you that, that might have given you a chance of getting out of there? What, what could you have responded to? And then they start thinking about like, well, what would I respond to, you know? And then we start actually implementing those as trials. And it, it doesn't really matter what they are. It doesn't matter how embarrassing it might be. It doesn't matter if you'd be like, well, I wish I didn't have to like listen to the theme song from Barney to get me untilted. Like that's so lame. But but who cares? Like as long as as long as it's what what does it for you. And for me, um, I had a friend, a uh, longtime friend in poker who I always knew would just kind of like make me feel better, make me laugh. Like poker is a very solitary. It's a lonely kind of thing. And um, I would text this guy and I'd send him a picture of the table and he'd make up stories about all the dumb things that everyone else was thinking and doing and whatever. And it would just like take the edge off and it would make me feel like someone's on my side. And I was able to just like get right back into the game. So do I wish that I didn't need that as a professional? Do I wish I could just like snap my fingers and, and play a game every time? Sure. Does it matter? Is it better that I have a solution that I know I can count on that takes me out of whatever suboptimal mental game I'm in and brings me right back? Absolutely. So we, we do a lot of trial and error that, but you can't, you can't find a solution. You can't engineer a solution unless you pay a lot of attention to what is happening to you in the moment, which people are, it's tough. It's, it's tough to do. I want to talk about our biggest disagreement, which okay. is, Hit me. so the dating thing, and even we disagree pretty wildly, but we're willing enough to have an open, open dialogue about this. Yeah, so we were talking together, and I've been deal. I've done with. I've dealt with a lot of people in the dating world. One conclusion that I personally come to is that dating is just like, which is just, just totally out of whack because we've been effectively hypersexualized, um, and now like secretly, lust kind of controls everything. Secretly, lust has every has has lust has been the prime controller of everything for everything for millennia. I don't. I don't think this is new. I don't think this is new at all. Well, well, I think that's not a hundred percent true. I mean, definitely, it's it's positive component, uh, whatever it looks like, uh, love. But in this case, I'm referring specifically to its overextension to where it becomes unhealthy. For example, um, just like where if it's the case where everything in the world has to like, you know, bend to the will of you know having sex. Uh, that doesn't seem like a healthy um, situation, but I think Harris uh, said something about that. Like, imagine huh? being carried along every day by just like the whims of sex. Um, but, but I, but I, I do think it's it's true for the majority. Anyway, continue. Yeah, of course, it's very true for a lot of people, and I mean, it's all over like music and culture and things like that. But anyway, I'd like to get your perspective on um, 
dating from in the poker world, first of all, but also in what uh, what you look for a guy, what you think is reasonable for a guy and to, to have, things like that. Okay, well, generally speaking, my experience with the poker world is kind of interesting because I was very hesitant to date in the poker world. And I, hmm. I, it, it, when I was coming up in poker, I kind of saw that every woman who was associated in some way with some guy, whether it was her boyfriend or her friend or whatever, they would just attribute her accomplishments to him. Like, oh, he's ghosting her. Or, oh, he taught her or whatever. And that really terrified me. I didn't want anybody to think I was good because I was dating some player who was very good. And so I was, uh, I deliberately did not get involved in any kind of like serious relationship with anybody, which to be honest, I regret. Like I kind of, I kind of should have first just been like, well, fuck anyone who thinks that. And secondly, like I probably could have gotten better at poker more quickly if like I was dating somebody who was also really passionate about the game and very good and you know that whole thing um not mm -hmm. that I would date not that I would have dated someone to do that but um but I kind of just wish I had just done whatever I wanted um that said I didn't have my accomplishments attributed to anybody else and I watched other other women kind of like have to fight really hard to establish like more legitimacy so um that said I've always found like the poker characters to be really you know, interesting and dynamic. And, and I, I really like a lot of the personality types, you know, there's obviously the degenerate downsides, but the, the kind of character that comes to poker is like usually very thoughtful and rational and logical. And, and I was really lucky to have um, a group of incredibly interesting friends from, from this world. And, and uh, obviously there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of guys who have the same kind of philosophy and, and logical fidelity that I, that I enjoy. So, so uh, it's not that, that I don't like the poker mind. I really do, but I found from dating in the poker world. So later when I did date and I had serious relationships in the, in the poker world, um, I found it to be a little bit imbalanced, to be honest, because the, the same sort of like emotional downsides, like were things we were both suffering from. And so I didn't really have anybody to go to. And it was also like quite competitive. Like there was all in, in, in a couple of my relationships, it was like, I felt like, um, I couldn't really even talk about poker with them because it, it, it was just like this negative thing where like, you know, they had to establish that they were a better player or all this stuff. And, and I didn't, I didn't really like it. So I actually, really appreciated dating guys outside of poker and mm -hmm. um online mm -hmm. dating when i first started online dating um i thought it was incredible i mean like I, I know like everyone's heard like oh women have it so easy and and you know we do uh but i but i remember it being kind of like this 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 wonderland of efficiency i was just like i can just like quickly like go through all these people and i um when i first moved to los angeles and and started you know going on tinder and all that stuff i, I had the time of my life to be honest and i think i i potentially i was good at selecting or potentially i was just very lucky but i met like awesome people like i i really really liked everyone i met and you know it, it not turning into something serious for one reason or another didn't you know have any bearing on that i did have the worst date of my life from online dating um so i i can say that i've experienced the other end of the spectrum and it it's, it's truly horrifying but <laughs> but aside from that one outlier uh i i enjoyed the experience and i, I found it to be super useful I think you're a bit in the minority, but I'm not sure by how much. I'd have to sample more people. 
Um, I can tell you that most guys do not have a, uh, a fun time on online dating. I'll say that. I don't have a whole lot of experience dating in the poker world because... Or actually, let me think. I mean, women are 5% of the field or so, so... Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. a lot harder. <laughs> yeah, there's, there wasn't, like, a bunch to, like... I mean, there's all kinds of... And there's logistical issues and all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, I did it someone... Don't you also feel like you want something different? Like, you want someone who's not just the female version of you to date? Like, I don't know. Well, I fe- wanted something else outside of poker. Um, the female... Well, it depends on what you mean by the female version of me. It would be like, uh, <laughs> right, like the female version of me would probably be like the inverse. Like by definition, it would be the opposite of me, but like certain things would be the same, right? But I think that people have a lot of similarities who, who are drawn to this kind of world. And I think you'd be more likely to find the female exact version of you than the inverse of you playing poker. I'm not, I don't, it's really not a knock on poker players. Like I find, I find poker players so, so fascinating, but I always just like enjoy dating people outside of poker more. Oh yeah, sure. Well, why not? The biggest thing I've noticed and based on the data is that the healthier people are, the better their experiences with them, like period. But when we're talking from like an ideal uh, partner perspective, I would think that someone has to have the traits that you don't have, right? Like probably for me, I would think that I would want someone in a perfect world because I'm not very organized myself. That's not my strength. <laughs> I'm more like I'm just going after stuff and just like full throttle. I'm not like super detail oriented. So I'd want like the female, the ideal female partner for me would be detail oriented or if like um, whatever, like more on the emotional side or I don't know. That's just my guess. Uh, yeah, but- the, the complimentary things are huge for sure. You don't, I wouldn't want to date myself. (laughs) I know that I was watching some podcast. I think it was, uh, oh my God, what's his name? We weren't, we talking about this guy before he has a, he has a podcast. He's like Russian American. Yeah. Oh my God. What's his name? I can't believe I'm, I can't, I can't believe I can't think of this guy. He's so famous. Anyway, he was on Whitney Cummings podcast and he was like, would you want to date you? And Whitney was like, yes, I would. I'm incredible. And I was thinking, like, I would never want to date myself. I would want someone that, 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 I think, I think, I think the the best philosophy is that you want someone that not necessarily fills in all of your gaps, but that you guys augment each other. I think that is the. Yes. I think that's the the ideal, the the ideal situation is that plus maximum healthiness is just like, I, I don't know how to measure it, but it's like the more you know, long-term, the more overall, like, positivity they've got, like, almost overall happiness. I, I Wait, what, what kicked it all off? I forgot what kicked it all off. Because we... You, you said something about, like... a fundamental like, disagreement about something. You were saying, why are women, like, shit-testing... Go- no, why do women give bad advice to guys? That was what it was. That yeah, was people was. give, like, awful, awful advice. And by the advice. way... Oh, yeah, this, this is something we wildly disagreed on. Like, I think giving bad advice as like a test and a filter, it's just an awful way of like, like this is just can't be oh, healthy. It, it, it is, oh, okay. it, it is, but it's not deliberate. It's not deliberate. I don't think anyone is doing it as like a deliberate machination at all. I think oh. that, that women um, who, and also men give bad advice too. both, both sexes give bad advice to the other person. But I think that, that the, that the bad advice um, is, is intended to be good 
in the context of a friendship. Like you value the other person, you believe their traits are are all lovable and 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 you know the you know the total package there. And that is not necessarily what attracts a mate. I think there are there are very different things. And so I, I think that unfortunately a result of this like um uh, like let's let's take the idea of consent um, for for uh, for a spin here at the at the risk of us both being canceled. I I think that 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 it's interesting because I don't ever I don't really think that what most women want. Of course, there's there's going to be exceptions and and people who prefer specific things. But I don't think what most women want is a is a guy that is asking for consent at every you know step. They want they want no, someone they that is that is that is psychologically savvy (laughs) but they want someone that is psychologically savvy enough to read what is going on um and and to understand the the social nuances of of the situation otherwise you get you find yourself kind of feeling like ugh, i wish i wasn't going along with this but you might end up doing so or you know you might say no i don't want to do this but when i was in like college i was i was finding myself going along with things all the time because it was just too uncomfortable to extricate myself. Like my, my best friend would say these outrageous things like, and then he took his pants off and I was like, nope. And left. And I was like, how could you do that? Like you've gone too far. Like you have to keep going. Like there, there, there was some, I, I could not extricate myself or, you know, he would say something outrageous or do something outrageous that like should make you leave or like, you know, they presumed a lot or whatever. And I would just go along with things all the time because I just felt like, Oh, I, I can't, I can't get myself out of this. And, and there's other personality types who, who would have had no problem doing that. But I, I think that, Women want men to understand and innately know, intuitively know how to behave, how to approach a situation, how to make a move. They, they want to see that someone has that established within them. And like I think that is why when men try, like, not, not omniscience, but just like maturity of, of social understanding. Um, I have yeah. it. I can tell with other people. Why, um, why can't why can't someone else? I mean, in my view, this is a sort of like duality kind of circling back around in that I think that there's been like a bit of a power grab of sorts going on and it's feminized uh, a lot of guys in a way, or at least that's the message that was received quite a lot. That's my personal opinion. Maybe you don't agree with that. Um I mean, I think there's a lot of. Have evidence. you ever heard the joke of like of like a man, uh, the women who don't want the guy cat calling her unless he's really hot and you know her well, age and, and whatever. Then like she wants she wants it from the fit mates. She doesn't want it from someone that that is not of her fitness level. Yeah, it's it's mostly a parody. I don't think women enjoy being cat called at all. But but yeah. I think there's a big difference between oh my god, this guy thought he could hit on me and like. Oh wow, this guy hit on me. Like you can have two different levels of potential mate with the same interaction and one's going to re- be received positively and one's going to receive be received negatively, right? Yeah. You teach that. Yeah. Um it comes down to they're not that into you. They like it if they're into you. You could do or say anything if they're into the you. Case, you could make yes. the joke. You could wear the dumb thing. You could you could say something <laughs> wrong. You could kiss her, whatever. And she's going to think, oh, that's great. He's just like, you know, he's quirky or like, oh, whatever. If she's into you, you can do whatever you want. And if she's not into you, no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter how man, many manuals you read, no matter what advice you take, it's not going to work. 
I think there's a subtlety. Let's see what you think of this idea. I think there's a little bit of a subtlety of what you're saying of like having this like social navigation of sorts, because I think social interaction is a lot more open-ended than you might think. Um, and I don't know, you have traveled quite a bit, right? Uh, yeah, I have. I've, 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 I'm pretty well traveled, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it seems today that, uh, that, you know, having this like social navigation is just like the equivalent of like just coming off cool in some kind of way. Right. Um, that's my read on it. Whereas, or cool in a very way that's, um, there's a big part of I mean, it's, that's not always the case, but that's a lot of the theme that, that I've personally seen in the West world specifically, but maybe it's just because I'm like stuck in LA the whole time where it really matters. Right. Where like, this is like a big value of like, just being, you know, like talking in the same kind of way as other people. And like, not doing anything particularly weird or whatever like that. Whereas in other cultures, it's far more tolerated or like far more like, yeah, I do. I, and I have felt that in other cultures, like the more, the more quirky off the beaten path, people are not as, you know, ostracized and, and they're not, they're not, um, they're, it doesn't seem to be the same kind of pressure for conformity. Uh, I, I agree. But I also think that what you have with the Western world or, 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 or not even just the Western world, but but really dense population centers with huge varieties of, of people and, and 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 that kind of thing is that you can kind of find your people no matter where they are if you if you it's want to find like minded people you you can. When I moved to LA, everyone was like, "What the hell are you doing?" Like everyone there is vapid and shallow, and I was like, "There's four million people here. I'm sure I can find That's intellectual, thought, curious." interesting people, you know, I thought that was insane. So, so I think what you're saying is true. And I think if you, if you limit yourself to a very narrow, narrow set of people, or if you are the kind of person that, that is unwilling to give up the trappings of, you know, the LA Kardashian-esque lifestyle, but you're trying to find like a very sweet intellectual person in there, you're gonna, you might struggle. I mean, you might find it, but you might you might struggle a lot more than if you're seeking out people who espouse the traits that you desire. You know, so I I, I hear what you're saying. I don't think in practice it's really true, but but I hear I, I know what you mean. Um. Well, I just think I'm looking at I'm looking at this as like an overarching tendency of sorts. Uh, a big thing that I'm trying to say is that the idea of social finesse, um, especially in the world of first world is very different from what it's too like tightly constrained yes it's too tightly constrained and has a lot to do with like the way that things are said that just comes off in a way that's fun and not particularly weird i have a theory i have a theory I, i i would guess that you could have potentially done better in other countries because you're more fringe like so you're more like socially fringy quirks and stuff we're seen as like a foreign American thing rather than like, oh, he's different than other Americans. <laughs> Seriously. No, I think you're sure. right, actually. Like, I, I couldn't tell you, like, like if, I'm, if I was dating somebody from, uh, you know, <laughs> especially someone like who I didn't speak the native language of, how am I really going to know if they're really cool or if I just think they're cool because they're like weird well, What the and f- is the difference? Like, I don't know. What? I'm not sure what I know. What the f- is the difference? <laughs> exactly. I don't know. But there's, you're, you have, it's like, we're, we're calibrated as, as humans to, um, 
actually, this is kind of I, I was I was learning about this from an, another podcast I was listening to about like the the actual granular problems with with social media and Instagram on which is the comparative scale that humans were never meant to compare themselves to um, to to millions of people. You were meant to compare yourself within your own society, absolutely. But the but but the the scale of society was was much smaller, and so these these huge vast comparative um, environments lead to immense dissatisfaction. Um, well, for a, for a variety of reasons, but but I think that that in the in the dating pool, if you are comparing your partner's behavior or your potential partner's behavior to other males in the immediate you know vicinity, that it, 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 when you have people with more consistent qualities overall, you might be able to discern that like, oh, it's a bunch of American guys your age from this city with this kind of wealth level and blah, blah, blah. It's different than if you have like one American and one Colombian and one Japanese guy. Like it's like, how do you really compare those people? You really can't. You just kind of give up and go with it. <laughs> the, the, there's 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 less commonality among traits to compare is what I well, mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a huge like, uh, what is the word? Um, a huge bias also going on from social media that is wildly unnatural where, you know, like it's very easy to think something, I believe the term is availability heuristic, think something is like super available. And I guess from a certain perspective, it is. Like women are, especially like women who choose to have like a public profile on Instagram and stuff are just getting DMs all the time from all these randoms. Like, I don't know why, I guess like these, I guess people legitimately think they might as well shoot their shot, right? Like it could happen to somebody. But I do, but I feel like the opposite isn't true. I feel like if a girl were to reach out to a guy, it would be, it would be taken way more seriously. But that's because of the scarcity. I think that women like their partners to display fitness. And I think that fitness comes in a million different arenas, right? Social fitness, physical fitness, uh, professional fitness, competitive fitness, like all of that stuff. And I think being um, dominant in, a, in your field of choice displays a lot of that. Right, and I think I think that is a is something most women find very sexy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think I don't know if it works the same for men. I don't think if men care, like, are like, would do you care if if your potential partner is like? I can't imagine a guy not dating a girl because she's not as good, you know, she's not as successful in her field as someone else. It doesn't really seem like like a typical thing. Maybe I I, I don't know. So the data suggests okay. that first of all. Um, I mean, I'd have to, like, it'd be really crazy if I had to just look through it. But the data suggests that the most attractive people get, like, bar and, fi bar fi in the way, bar far and away the most attention. It's not even close. And then from there... Um, they did, but that's, they do, but that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the most individual attention. I agree with you, of course. But I think that, that the interest in that is very short-lived. I mean... I think that that wanes, like, very quickly if there's nothing else to support that. Maybe that's for women. Or is is it enough? That's true. Yeah, um, I mean, in this case, I don't know. You're right. It's more prized for men. It's more of a statusy thing to have a, a hot a hot woman. But um, I hear you on that. But I I think that data, if we're talking about what the data supports, it's the success of getting like a date or a match or whatever, right? It's not the long term relationship. It's not the, the the satisfaction. Let's, okay, let's let's put a bookmark in it and okay. continue next time. All right, see you, Melanie. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. All right, talk, talk soon. soon.